Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to the long read from Stuff. This week's story is called See No Evil. It was written by Stuff investigative reporter Eugene Bingham, who joins me now. Hi, Eugene. Kia ora, Michael. So I can probably tell listeners that this is a two-part story, uh, and I can say it's a story about the March 2019 terror attacks at two mosques in Christchurch, and that it is mostly actually about what happened uh, before and after those attacks, yeah? That's right. So we start back in about 2014, and what the series does is it traces the story of a group of women who spent four years trying to raise the alarm uh, with officials about what was happening with the New Zealand as far as Islamophobia goes, as far as racism goes, and what they saw as threats to the Muslim community. And we should say again, this is a two-part story, part one of two. Uh, that's because it's very long, hence the two episodes. And reading it, 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 it almost feels like a podcast itself. So without you know, treating too much on the plot of your story, tell us, how do, how do you compile or present a story as broad as this? Yeah, I tried to break it up into parts. So it's in seven chapters, which you'll hear through the podcast. And it, what, what I tried to do is try to make it conversational and, and because it deals with really complex, quite um, sometimes dark content material. But I tried to make it um, easy to understand, easy to follow. So you can really understand the links that these women went to trying to raise the alarm. All right. Thanks, Eugene. Let's get into it. Here is Eugene reading part one of his story, See No Evil. Chapter 1. The Iceberg In 1914, an alliance of transatlantic nations got together to decide what to do about a common enemy. An enemy that had threatened all of their interests to various extents. An enemy that had recently brought about a tragedy, one that no one saw coming. What was this enemy? Considered so dangerous, so much a threat, that nations such as the United Kingdom and Germany, who would soon be at war with each other, were willing to unite against it. Water, or, to be more precise, frozen water. The 13 countries had been shocked into action by the sinking of the Titanic, with the loss of more than 1,500 lives on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York, one of the world's most famous disasters, and one caused by an iceberg. Two years after the sinking, those transatlantic allies against icebergs formed the International Ice Patrol, an organisation that still exists to this day, searching for threats to ships in the Atlantic and the Arctic Oceans. The sinking of the Titanic had awakened the world to the danger of icebergs, even though it was hardly a new threat. Over previous decades, they'd brought about the loss of hundreds of lives at sea. Someone should have seen the Titanic disaster coming. In the months after the Christchurch terror attacks of March 15, 2019, the former head of the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, Andrew Kibblewhite, gave evidence about what he knew, what the system knew, about the danger of white supremacy. We weren't unaware of a white supremacist threat, but it wasn't where our focus was, he says in an interview with the Royal Commission of Inquiry, into the deaths of 51 innocent lives 
at the hands of a white supremacist. Then he makes an interesting comparison. The system, Kibblewhite says, saw the threat of the extreme right as a small iceberg. After March 15, Kibblewhite admits, it was obvious they were wrong. The iceberg was bigger than we realised and it was our job as a system to know the size of that iceberg. How did the system miss this iceberg, or at least the significance of it? How did no one see this iceberg coming? You want the truth? People did see it coming, and they tried to tell others. Stuff has spent months gathering insider accounts and scanning thousands of pages of documents, millions of words in which from 2014 to 2018, the Muslim community was crying out. Our investigations have focused on one organisation in particular, the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand, IWCNZ. On the surface, its lobbying was highly effective. Between 2014 and 2018, its members met with cabinet ministers, an intelligence chief, the police, and top civil servants. Women like Aliyah Danzaisen, Anjum Rahman, and Dr. Maysoon Salama, all proud Muslim women, all from different backgrounds, all with different upbringings, all united in their belief that Aotearoa was home, would try to warn the government about what was going on and the danger the Islamic community could see coming. It's not as if people wouldn't listen to them. It's what would happen next. Time and again, Rahman says, they would be faced with the same response when they spoke to a room of officials. They listen politely and smile and say, oh yes, yes, she recalls, and that's it. And from the evidence seen by Stuff, she's right, that's it. No further action taken, at least no further action that materially resolved the issues they had raised. Sure, there were plenty of well-meaning people who tried. There was consultation and high-level meetings with people who wanted to help. But in the end, when you stand back, you can't help but ask, what changed? A lot of things went round in circles. Some of what the women were talking about during the years-long, relentless struggle for attention was hair-raising. Increasing Islamophobia, blatant racist attacks and threats, and the looming shadow of the alt-right. Not every meeting... Not every plea was about the threats and the danger. But certainly enough, it beggars belief that when the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Christchurch attacks reported back, it found the state was not paying enough attention to the ideology and hatred that manifested with bloody, horrible consequences on March 15. When you read and hear what was said repeatedly, it beggars belief that more wasn't done to help and protect the mostly migrant community. Throughout this investigation, Stuff will examine what happened to try to explain and understand, to answer questions that, believe it or not, still remain. One of those questions? Is what happened in the build-up to March 15 a symptom of a wider malaise, a disconnect between those who run the country, politicians and the public service, and the people? Across that divide, have we forgotten how to listen to each other anymore? Dan Zeissen and Rahman cite one example of how they never seemed to be able to quite get through to anyone until it was too late. 
It's something they've raised before in previous coverage of how they tried to get officials' attention. After the attacks, Rahman and Dan Zeissen spoke widely and loudly about their frustration to Stuff, RNZ, Newsroom, The Spin-Off and others. But this particular example neatly encapsulates their frustration from those years of dealing with the bureaucracy and politicians before the attacks. From around 2014 onwards, in meeting after meeting, the IWCNZ sought funding to help the Muslim community, some money to pay for social workers for instance. Their requests would bounce around, but in the end, before the attacks, no social workers eventuated. Even within the agency which was supposed to be helping immigrant communities, the Office of Ethnic Communities, OEC, money was tight. Budget bids would be consigned to the rejection pile. Then, on March 16, 2019, Dan Zeissen's phone pinged just as she was walking across the tarmac towards her flight to Christchurch. As the call of early evening took hold and shadows began to stretch across the runway. She knew she shouldn't check it, but she couldn't help herself. Desperate for news, she looked at her phone. It was a text. Hey, put your phone away, a ground staff worker yelled at her. Everyone was tense. Dan Zeissen was rushing to board a crowded flight from Auckland to Christchurch. The passengers had been delayed while Air New Zealand arranged a bigger plane because so many people wanted to head south. Dan Zeissen showed the text to one of her colleagues from IWCNZ. They were both immediately appalled. Kia ora, Aaliyah, the text read. My thoughts are with the community. We are increasing OEC resources. An official would be in touch. Na mihi. The message was from a very senior government official, one who Dan Zeissen and Rahman had dealt with many times. In one sense, it was exactly what they'd been asking for. OEC was going to get more money to help ethnic communities. In another sense, it was a blow. They'd found all this money to put into ethnic communities overnight, says Rahman. Suddenly, all the money is there. After we're all dead. Dan Zeissen remembers, it was like another killer in the heart. The day before, March 15, 2019, a gunman had walked into two mosques in Christchurch and carried out the deadliest terror attack of modern times in Aotearoa. The death toll would climb to 51 people, worshippers who had gone to pray. Dan Zeissen and three other women from the IWCNZ were at Auckland Airport on their way to help survivors and the grieving, including Dr. Maysoon Salama. Her son was among the dead, and her husband was seriously injured. Andrew Little has never shied away from complex problems. But as he sits down for an interview with Stuff about the terror attack, the fallout, and what preceded it, it's hard to ignore the fact that he must be one of the busiest people in the country. Minister of Health during a global pandemic, Minister of Treaty Negotiations at a time that some of the toughest claims remain to be resolved. Little is also the minister responsible for the Security Intelligence Service and the minister in charge of coordinating the response to the recommendations made by the Royal Commission of Inquiry 
In other words, the Christchurch terror attack is very much on his plate. When we talk, it's almost exactly three years to the day since the gunman calmly walked into the Al Noor Mosque and started firing his legally obtained semi-automatic weapon. Little sips on a glass of water and takes a breath as he waits for the awkward question he knows is coming. Was the Muslim community let down in the lead up to March 15? I certainly understand why the Muslim community feels that, says Little. This was a horrific act, targeted to them in their place of worship from somebody who had spent all his time while in New Zealand preparing for it. And nobody seemed to notice, and it happened, and it was tragic. But, you could sense the butt coming, couldn't you? But I think the Royal Commission's findings were that the way the guy operated was that it was most unlikely he would have been detected, even if there had been a high level of awareness. Which is true. That's exactly what the Royal Commission found. Behind that truth, though, is a whole other and convenient truth. There wasn't a high level of awareness because the agencies weren't looking. Well, they certainly weren't looking closely enough. There was this undue concentration of resources, says Little. The agencies were focusing on what they considered to be the most pressing threat at the time, Islamic fundamentalist terrorism, radicalised members of the very same community that was asking for help. In terms of the white identity extremist threat, it is true that the agencies really only started getting onto that in 2018, says Little. I can understand that the community would feel that it should have been a higher priority before that. How could this have happened? How could people who were trying to raise the alarm have been ignored to the extent they were? In fact, as Dan Zeissen and Rahman saw it, it was worse than that. Sometimes, when they tried to pass on information about the far right or racism, they were instead asked about their own community, they say. Oh yes, they absolutely wanted us to be spying on our own community, says Rahman. She hastens to add, Obviously, if something is going to happen, we're going to report it to the police. If we see anything worrying, we're going to raise it. So, if it's good enough to ask them to spy on their own community... Why wasn't it good enough to act on the information they were passing on about the far right? Let's be clear from the outset. As Little alluded to, security agencies had concerns about threats from Islamic fundamentalist extremists for decades. Globally, those threats have materialised in the form of large-scale attacks on innocent people. And locally, eight people were injured at Lynn Mall in Auckland last year and a mass stabbing carried out by a man who held radical views. So no one is saying the agencies should not have had their eyes on those concerns. But it's not an either-or situation, surely. Also, there's another thing we need to be clear about from the outset. No one is saying that anyone alerted the authorities to what the Christchurch terrorist was up to as he planned for his chaotic act. Though, that raises another important part of the story, which we'll get to. Neither Rahman nor Dan Zeissen, nor anyone else for that matter, walked into offices in Wellington saying, there's a guy down south you should be looking at. In fact, lots of what the women were talking to the government about was everyday stuff. How Muslim kids were struggling at school, how Muslim women were finding it hard to integrate into society and needed help. A report the Islamic Women's Council wrote for government agencies in 2014 lists 10 areas where they believe the 46,000-strong community needed help, 
migration, public perception of Muslims, employment, education, health, police, social isolation, family violence, democratic engagement, and youth. We hope to partner with the government to plan and implement a comprehensive program that will lead to long-term and sustainable solutions, the report says. Those hopes would be well and truly faded by March 2019. Which is not to say there weren't people within the government pushing on the women's behalf. The then Race Relations Commissioner, Dame Susan Devoy, picked up on what the community was saying and lambasted agencies for their lack of action. The government response to one area in particular, the issue of preventing violent extremism, alarmed her to the extent that she wrote to the State Services Commissioner, Peter Hughes, in December 2016. An issue of such critical importance to the safety and security of all New Zealanders surely warrants leadership, coordinated oversight, dedicated funding, expert and coordinated program development and delivery, DeVoy wrote in the letter obtained by staff. The overall response to date lacks leadership, is piecemeal, uncoordinated, discretionary and inadequate. In the carefully worded, polite language of typical missives that circulate around the Wellington bureaucratic jungle, this was a roar. Hughes agreed it was an important issue and set in motion a series of responses which would be described by one source as banging heads together. Ultimately though, even DeVoy's blast and Hughes's reaction could not bring about change. The Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Christchurch attacks would find that Based on the evidence of what it had heard about interactions between the Muslim community and the government prior to the attacks, the public sector needed to change. Agencies' approaches to issues such as countering violent extremism had been characterised by limited political ownership and an absence of political discussion, says the report. The public sector mind shift must shift to value communities' input into decisions, transparency and engaging in a robust debate. In other words, shape up and start listening, like properly listening. How do we reach that point? And have our agencies learned their lessons? These are questions we'll seek to answer in this investigation. Some agencies front it up, others wouldn't. The Director General of Security, Rebecca Kitteridge, for instance, declined to be interviewed, although she sent a lengthy statement which says in part, I want to assure everyone that we take seriously every concern that is raised with us by the public. Information provided to NZSIS is carefully assessed and investigated as required, with referrals to other agencies, such as New Zealand Police, as appropriate. The nature of our work means it is not usually possible for us to report back to members of the public about how their information has been handled. I think it's important to note that white identity violent extremism was an emerging national security threat that was being looked at by NZSIS from May 2018. We'll come back to that and more from the statement later. In the meantime, in this investigation, we'll talk not only to the women who tried so very hard to raise the alarm, but to seasoned Wellington insiders, people who share a sense of frustration though their circumstances are very different. People like Dr Simon Chappell, who has held senior economic and public policy positions both here and internationally, 
and is now director of the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. A man who knows the system inside out, and yet feels like he's often ignored. Take, for example, the select committee process, which is supposed to be a mechanism for consultation with the public over law changes. Yeah, right, people within the Beltway tell stuff. By the time a proposed law change gets to Parliament, many say, it's like the minds of the minister and department agency overseeing the process are already made up. Sure, the public is welcome to make submissions, but with committee numbers favouring the government and departmental officials providing advice, is there really any independent analysis of what people have said? I've been involved in a lot of select committee hearings, says Chapel. And you've got to think that I've got an advantage. But I've never felt that anything I've said has been taken on board. You can understand, he says, people feeling they've been cut out of the process. If I'm feeling this, how are you going to feel if you're a regular citizen without experience in government who has something to say? Or a member of the Muslim community who's trying to draw attention to the anti-extremist space? How would you feel? Aliyah Dan Zeissen knows. She's been there. She's lived that frustration. She came to New Zealand from the United States where she was a lawyer who dealt with sovereign rights issues when she clerked for a judge and grew up in an area where militia and armed patriot groups exist. I have lived experience. I have a legal background. And I'm telling them there's something wrong, she says. They couldn't see it. To them, I was uninformed. Looking at the officials from behind her glasses and beneath her hijab, she quickly realised she knew more about the threat of extremism than most of them. And yet she'd come away thinking, you're still discounting what I'm saying because I have a piece of cloth on my head. That is literally what it is. There was a lot of things like that where you'd think, what the f***? From Stuff, a new 12-part documentary podcast. He was into sex every day. The Commune. Sex, drugs, and a guru called Bert. There are crimes, but this isn't a whodunit, it's a why done it. Good God, adults agreed to this? The Commune. Coming soon to your favourite podcast platform and to stuff.co.nz. You've already been welcome to Centre Point. Chapter 2. Threats and Warnings Aaliyah Dan Zeissen was at her Waikato home one day when the phone rang late in the evening. Unusual, she thought, as not many people knew her unlisted number. It was the first of three calls she would get that evening from the same person. Each time, it got more frightening. The caller told her he was from the local council, that he had seen a Syrian bush pig out in the garden of her home and that because the animal wasn't native to New Zealand, they knew how to get rid of it. Dan Zeissen was beside herself. She had not been in New Zealand long, though, for the record, she is not Syrian. She was born in the United States and came to New Zealand in 2006. She did wear a hijab, including in the large garden out the back of her house, a place of toil and refuge, or so she thought. She complained to the phone company, who told her to ring the police, who told her it was a prank, ignore it. Instead, she went to the police station and insisted that a complaint be taken 
in case something further happened. What was more, she had the phone number of the caller thanks to caller ID. Eventually, police tracked down the caller. It was a teenager she didn't know. Of all the threats, of all the harassment, of all the Islamophobic slurs Danzison has endured in New Zealand, this incident was not the worst or the most dangerous. Not by a long way. But at the time, it spoke to her about something she was noticing. This incident upset me, not just because of the content, but because of the initial dismissals by the police, as if it was nothing, she says. Such statements are not nothing, and can escalate if not addressed. Around that time, and over the coming years, Muslims across the country, especially women, were being subjected to abuse and violence, shoved and abused, having their hijabs torn off, even being driven at on the footpath. Or like what happened to an Afghan refugee out shopping in a Dunedin supermarket in August 2014. After reading product labels on the shelves, she turned back to her basket and found a note. She should remove her hijab. New Zealand was a western country and no place for terrorists and extremists, the note read. Or how about the vile post to a New Zealand Muslim Facebook page which ended, You will not win the world and you will suffer for your affiliations. Dan Zeissen's colleague, Anjum Brahman, remembers 2014 as particularly frightening. It's like we weren't seen as human. Can you imagine sitting in your house too afraid to go out? But rather than sit in their houses, cowering, Rahman and Dan Zeissen and other members of the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand started to do something about it. They started telling people, the police, the government, this has to stop, something has to be done. It was the beginning of a relentless attempt to draw attention to the fear and isolation many Muslim women were suffering, an attempt to get help to change attitudes, an attempt to get help to feel safe. If you'd like a timeline to follow along with, this was five years before the attack on the mosques in Christchurch. As it happens, 2014 was a time when serious minds were turning serious attention to the potential threat of the far right in New Zealand. That year, Two reports were produced by police intelligence officers who studied the risks of domestic terrorism in Aotearoa. One of the reports, titled Domestic Extremism, Unlikely but Not Out of the Question, looked at the possibility of incidents carried out by anyone but Islamist extremists. Because, you know, at the time, security agencies considered Islamic fundamentalists were the most likely threat. So this report was sort of like the police saying, Yeah, we've got our eyes on them, but what about that lot over there in the corner? Any risk there? The report concluded that, look, yes, there is a lot of stuff swirling around the internet that might motivate people to act. Violent race-hate material, for instance. But there are no indications that groups on the far left or the far right are planning anything. However, the exponential growth of the internet and its ability to radicalise someone and the ease with which someone could buy guns or equipment for a homemade explosive meant the danger remained, the report said. 
an extremist act undertaken by an individual or small group is judged to be a realistic possibility. The other police intelligence report on the topic that year was titled The Right Wing in New Zealand, Myth versus Reality. It contained a disparaging assessment of extreme right groups in this country, a shambolic rabble more likely to attract media headlines than carry out violence. Groups would frequently spread white supremacist slurs and anti-immigration messaging, sometimes even espouse neo-Nazi beliefs. But when it came down to it, the report concludes, while it presents a confronting and sometimes intimidating image, the domestic far-right is characterised by discord and disorganisation. Still, the official noted, conspiracy theories and fears of a white genocide were prevalent, and the extreme right had a propensity for firearms. Why? Many are unable to compete with adversaries in terms of physical violence. Overall, while the groups themselves did not show any intent or capability to cause harm, the same could not be said for individuals. The report said, Extremist, racist acts are rare and have not routinely featured the use of firearms, but the relative ease of access to semi-automatic firearms means that a lone wolf attack scenario remains a possibility. Again, for those following a timeline at home, this is three years before a white supremacist who feared white genocide and bragged about starting a race war was radicalised on the internet and started buying semi-automatic weapons. The distribution list of both those reports included the Prime Minister at the time, Sir John Key. In actual fact, even in 2014, the fact that there was a risk of an extremist legally obtaining firearms for a terrorist act should have come as no surprise to anyone in the security or intelligence fields. Years earlier, in 2011, a group of the government's intelligence experts, the Combined Threat Assessment Group, CTAG, set out to answer a question. How easy would it be for a terrorist to get hold of firearms in New Zealand? Answer, quite easy actually. The report came about after an exercise in which agents and officials looked at New Zealand's vulnerability to a terror attack. In other words, members of the intelligence community recognised that the possibility of someone getting hold of lethal weapons through perfectly legal means was a real risk. The report said, under the current legal parameters of firearms availability, registration and licensee vetting, CTAG judges that a terrorist or violent extremist could legally acquire firearms, including military-style semi-automatic weapons, for use in an attack. Vulnerabilities in the vetting system included the fact there was no provision to check someone's travel history or to carry out profiling which could expose radical tendencies. You would think that this report might have set off alarm bells. In fact, it did cause a bit of a commotion, but not because of its findings. Essentially, the report triggered a turf war. Some agencies suggested CTAG had stepped out of its patch. The Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, DPMC, decided to ask police headquarters what they thought, which was a bit odd since police officers had collaborated with CTAG to write the report. Two letters were sent. Police eventually responded, pointing out that gun crime levels in New Zealand were low, which, in hindsight, missed the point, didn't it? 
DPMC officials spoke to police again in 2012, reviewed everything and decided, no, nothing needs to change. New Zealand's gun laws and licensing procedures, including the vetting process identified by SeaTag as a potential weak spot for terrorists to exploit, the inability to check travel history or see if there were any signs of radicalisation, remained unchanged. Again, for those following the timeline here, this is well before a violent extremist with a penchant for travelling to some unusual places and who had been soaking in bilious radical material online for years, legally obtained a firearms licence. So, to recap, by 2014, the Islamic Women's Council of New Zealand is telling police about racist threats and violence, and there have been three reports in which intelligence officials conclude the risk of a lone wolf carrying out an attack is a realistic possibility, that an extreme right violent extremist could potentially legally obtain deadly firearms, and that there was a weakness in the firearms licensing system which could allow a terrorist to get a firearms license. Even the Prime Minister, Key, was on the distribution list for two of those reports. The overwhelming international narrative and media coverage around terrorism painted Islamic fundamentalists as the biggest threat. And, as we said in Chapter 1, there were attacks which had stoked the concern about those risks. But officials within New Zealand's government were not blind to the danger faced by the local Muslim community. In fact, Danzeisen says some officials were being proactive. The Ministry of Social Development asked me to help them because they didn't know how to deal with our community's issues from a cultural perspective, she says. MSD asked for more information, a summary of what the problems were. The women obliged. The council put down all the major areas where we were having issues, says Rahman. And the thing is, we didn't just say to them, these are our issues, deal with them. We said, these are our issues, here is what we see as solutions, here's what we can offer, and here's what we need help with. We took it as a partnership thing. This was all sounding promising, especially for Muslim women and girls. Very promising. People were listening. And then, December 2015 came along, and with it, a shock from an unexpected quarter. The Prime Minister... It's Adam Dudding here, Stuff's podcast director. You'll have gotten used to the voice of this guy. Kia Yeah, him. Me, Michael Wright. Each week I sift through all the amazing feature articles and stories that are being produced by Stuff's reporters around the country to bring you the long read. What you're hearing is a kind of distillation of the very best of Stuff's journalism, which takes a bunch of time and a bunch of money. So if you want to help Stuff make podcasts and other long-form journalism like this and also write the stories that go into the long read in the first place, we'd love your support. Through the Stuff Supporter Program, you can choose to contribute any amount, and you can do it once, monthly, or annually. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. Chapter 3, Spies and Brides. Parliamentary select committees often deal with matters that have far-reaching consequences for people's lives but really have just two words uttered in one of Wellington's wood-panelled rooms where MPs gather caused as much upheaval 
as those spoken by Prime Minister Sir John Key on December 8, 2015. Seven years later, those two words still rile people and cause others to squirm. Key was chairing the Intelligence and Security Committee, a group of MPs whose job it is to hold the intelligence agencies to account. He was questioning the head of the Security Intelligence Service, Rebecca Kitteridge, about people in New Zealand being influenced by the terror group Islamic State, or ISIS, which at the time was thriving in Syria and Iraq. Kitteridge replies that one recent phenomenon was the issue of New Zealand women travelling to Iraq and Syria. Key interjects and uses those two words, jihadi brides. Immediately after he says it, there's a micropause from Kitteridge. She's sitting opposite Key at the far end of a set of tables arranged in a rectangle. Her eyes look away from him and up to the right before she carries on. Presumably, she says, I mean, it's difficult to see what they do when they go. Her answer continues, and she waters down the assumption that the reason Kiwi women might be going is to marry terrorist fighters. But Key has set the tone and speaks to the media about it after the hearing. Jihadi brides is the phrase that catches on, catches the attention of the media coverage, and lights a fire that still smoulders to this day. Not that anyone in that moment seems to notice what has just happened. Andrew Little, the minister in charge of the Security Intelligence Service these days, was sitting next to Key in that committee meeting, as then leader of the opposition, He admitted in a recent interview that, at that time, he wasn't aware of the impact those two words would have. But that has changed. I've certainly become aware since that the community felt it was marginalising of the community, and particularly Muslim women in New Zealand, little tells stuff. There was that flavour of the time because of what we were told were the main terrorist threats at the time. It was a pejorative statement that reflected poorly on the community, and they really felt that, says Little. The way that Aliyah Danzison and Anjum Rahman of the Islamic Women's Council saw things. The jihadi bride's comment was another brick and a pile of prejudice that impacted Muslim people, especially women. It's the layering time and time again, says Danzison. The fallout from the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States was the first big impact, and things ramped up from there. Racism and blame would be directed at anyone in a hijab after any fundamentalist atrocity. Each time, the language keeps getting bigger and bigger, she says. Rahman puts it this way. It's like we weren't seen as human. We were just a community to be targeted. Dan Zeissen says there was a media narrative about Muslims. The kindling was there, the smouldering ash was there, and ISIS was petrol on the fire. And then you had our Prime Minister bringing it to New Zealand, she says. Before we go on, there's an important twist to the Jihadi Bride story that you need to know. A twist that didn't attract as much attention. A twist that certainly didn't reverse the impact. Those New Zealand women who were allegedly leaving to go to Syria and Iraq? Months after that committee hearing, it emerged that, actually... There were no women leaving New Zealand to become jihadi brides. What the intelligence showed was that women with New Zealand passports had travelled from Australia. The implication that terrorist sympathisers were living amongst us and then heading off to join ISIS was wrong. 
Kitteridge later apologised in private to the Islamic Women's Council over the affair. To this day, it remains a sensitive topic for many officials. Kitteridge declined to be interviewed by staff, but said in a statement, I can confirm I offered an apology to the council. In particular, I apologise for the delay in the public record being corrected with regards to media reporting that New Zealand women travelled to Daesh-controlled areas in the Middle East from Aotearoa, New Zealand, whereas in fact they had travelled from Australia. I said how sorry I was about the way the issue had played out in the media. I acknowledged that the way in which the issue had been reported by the media at the time had stigmatised the Muslim community, and particularly Muslim women. For the Islamic Women's Council, in the aftermath of the controversy, there was some progress. Since 2014, the council had been talking to the police about what was happening to people in their community, and importantly, working with other agencies to find solutions. And by 2016, it seemed, progress was being made. With other members of the council, Dan Zeissen and Rahman met Chris Finlayson, then the minister in charge of the SAS, in Hamilton. Finlayson says during the meeting, he heard from the women about the racism they were encountering. He says, I distinctly remember one lady saying to me, I was in the supermarket and someone said, go back where you come from. Finlayson remembers the meeting was on a weekend, and on the following Monday, during a regular briefing with senior SIS officials, he told them, these people need a lot of TLC, keep in touch with them. In other words, he passed on what he'd been told, albeit that he does not recall there being any specific threats mentioned. It was more what you would call Islamophobia, he says. This is not how the women recall the seriousness of what they passed on to the minister, but we'll come back to this. Regardless, the SIS did take on board Finlayson's advice to show the women TLC, and in 2016, Kitteridge met with Rahman and others from the council. The next day, Kitteridge wrote to Rahman to thank her for the meeting and to say that she saw them as partners. In our different ways, we contribute to keeping New Zealand safe and secure, wrote Kitteridge. A partnership. Things really were looking up. And certainly, there was one senior official who got where they were coming from. One autumn afternoon, there was a community picnic in a park. The Race Relations Commissioner, Dame Susan DeVoy, was invited along. It was an informal event, but during it, DeVoy approached Dan Zeissen and said she was hearing a lot of reports about Muslim women getting harassed. Could she help? I said yes, says Dan Zeissen. The woman laid everything out to DeVoy, Dan Zeissen sending a detailed email explaining how Muslim women and youth were struggling and how things could change. From that moment on, DeVoy became a fierce advocate, working within the system to draw attention to what the community was enduring and the warnings they were sounding. Meanwhile, within various government departments and agencies, sure, things were happening, but it was scattergun and seemed to meander along like pieces of driftwood. In fact, by 2016, there had already been 10 years of work to address issues within ethnic communities, including the Muslim population. A Labour ethnic affairs minister, Chris Carter, took a paper to the cabinet after noticing disruptive events overseas, including the so-called Cronulla riots of 2005 
when groups of Anglo-Australians sought to reclaim beaches in Sydney's eastern suburbs, attacking people who looked Middle Eastern. New Zealand ministers approved a cross-government work program called Connecting Diverse Communities. But as one official familiar with the program put it, nothing ever really came out of it. Ministers in the national government of 2014 to 2017 had their officials working on a program with a similar sounding goal around strengthening communities. But there was a bit more to it than that. A 2015 briefing to National's Minister for Ethnic Communities, Sam Lotuinga, plays up the value of making diverse communities stronger. Underneath it, though, was a desire from the government to ramp up efforts on counter-terrorism. In other words, bring those communities inside the tent quickly. Because it wasn't just any terrorism that was causing the concern. The officials were laser-focused on one particular strand of terrorism. The briefing explained to the minister, with the rise of Islamic State, there is heightened interest in countering violent extremism internationally and in New Zealand. Countering this threat has become a core security concern for many of New Zealand's key security and regional partners. And as the threat develops globally, it is increasingly a concern of our own. The message was clear. These Islamic extremists are becoming increasingly problematic and we need to head them off by making sure our communities aren't vulnerable to radicalisation. A countering violent extremism program was established for the newly formed Community Strengthening Working Group of officials to meet the needs of the Counter-Terrorism Coordination Committee chaired by the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. Serious stuff. All these programs and working groups and committees... But what was being done to meet the needs of the community itself? A community whose members were telling officials they felt unsafe. At one point, a member of the Muslim community who said he had come up with a way to avert extremism was invited along to the community strengthening working group. Government-led programs would not get through to the people they needed to, the man told the group. Initiatives needed to come from the community. After he presented his ideas... Documents seen by staff show officials discussed in private what they thought. It had merit, they agreed, but it was light on detail. Some officials pondered how else the man and his community might help. One senior official suggested the man who presented to the group be asked, Who are we worried about? When you think about it, it's an odd question. It implied that while at the time many in the community were asking for help, asking for protection... The government's prime concern was protecting people from the community, or at least some individuals within it. That's how Dan Zeissen and Rahman were thinking anyway. The vibe they were getting was, oh yeah, sure, tell us about dangers you see, but when it comes to solving anything within your community, hmm. Dan Zeissen says, There's a thing called epistemic injustice. It's a phenomenon in which people are discriminated against when they try to impart knowledge. We were seen as valuable in the sense of informants, but we were not informed in their eyes on community issues. Rahman puts it, When we present, this is what the issue is, it's not taken as, this is someone who knows what they're talking about. Someone within the government was listening to them, Devoy, the Race Relations Commissioner. She took up their case with the State Services Commissioner Peter Hughes, 
including sending that letter we learned about in Chapter 1, the letter in which she lambasted the government's reaction to the community's concerns. In response, another meeting was arranged, jointly hosted by the State Services Commission and the Human Rights Commission, except this was no ordinary meeting. It was an all-of-government meeting, with representatives from 10 government agencies, high-powered stuff, and invited along were representatives of seven Muslim community organisations, including the Islamic Women's Council. Think about that. Some of the most powerful civil servants in the country, people in charge of huge budgets, people who can affect change, real change, sitting in a conference room together to listen to people from a sector of the community that has been crying out for help. On March 23, 2017, Dan and Rahman stood in front of those senior bureaucrats and prepared to put their case once and for all. At last, they thought, they were going to be heard. Chapter 4. An Exercise and a Warning On March 23, 2017, Aliyah Dan and Anjum Rabman walked into the Majestic Centre building on Wellington's Willis Street, an equal mix of nerves and steel. This was the best chance they'd had in three years, the opportunity to stand before government officials and plead their case for the Muslim community, along with senior figures from six other organisations. Inside, behind the glass walls of a meeting room on the 15th floor, some of the country's most senior civil servants settled in, taking their places in two rows of chairs. They were there for the day. There would be morning tea and lunch with halal options, an area with tea and coffee for conversations off to the side, and a prayer room available. The arrangements for the workshop, led by the Human Rights Commission and the State Services Commission, seemed to show that the government was serious about trying to get things right with the community. The invitation read, The purpose of the day is to explore how senior public officials can better support our Kiwi Muslim communities fully participate in New Zealand society. Dan Zeissen and Rahman knew some of the officials in the room from dealings they'd already had with various departments, including the police and the Ministry of Social Development. But there were others they didn't know. It was a chance to be heard by those who sat in lofty positions. Government decision-makers were at the table to hear directly the issues and the harm and the prime examples from us, says Denzison. That was the key meeting, because they could make decisions and put aside budgets and help. Throughout the day, the community representatives stood at the front and spoke, some using slides to illustrate their points. One of the officials at the meeting says the groups which spoke were impactful, Most of the presentations were powerful and moving and really relevant, certainly in what I was looking to do in my world, he says. At the morning tea break, he approached Dan Zeissen and Rahman and asked for more details, and later emailed them to get the ball rolling on some programs that could make a difference. But that was not the response of everyone there, and the hope, it seemed, drained from some quarters of the room. There was certainly a divergence of views among the officials, he says. Some people were very interested, others didn't want to be there and couldn't get out of there fast enough. It was something the women picked up on too. At lunchtime, with a few exceptions, most officials steered clear of them, they say. It's like they didn't know how to deal with us, says Dan Zeissen. Rahman puts it this way, 
there was this standoffishness was my feeling. For many, it was like, uh, we're here because we have to be here. We're not invested in anything. There was no sense they were going to do anything. This meeting had come about after the then Race Relations Commissioner Dame Susan DeVoy had written to the State Services Commissioner Peter Hughes in December 2016. DeVoy was a staunch advocate for the Muslim community, and she could see that after three years of meetings with various officials, things were dragging. It seemed issues that were being raised again and again weren't being properly dealt with. Concerns about the safety of the Muslim community, the harassment and bullying of Muslim children in school, access to services they should be entitled to, the negative portrayal of Muslim people in the media. Hughes agreed to bring together 10 government agencies from the Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet to the Ministry of Education. In many ways, such a gathering was extraordinary. But what was also extraordinary was who wasn't there. No one from the intelligence agencies, nor from the Office of Ethnic Communities, OEC, attended. You'd think OEC would have been front and centre, says one source. And if you think about it, it is strange, right? Where was this agency, which you would have thought would have been central to a discussion about the concerns of a mostly ethnic community? In fact, not being at a meeting at the Majestic Centre was in some ways the least of OEC's worries at the time. It was an agency beset by problems and operating on a squeezed budget. We'll come back to this. Throughout this time, it seemed there were efforts within some parts of the government to take seriously the concerns of the Muslim community. For instance, on October 5, 2018, Security Intelligence Service and police officers held a counter-terrorism tabletop exercise, a test to see how prepared agencies would be in the event of an attack. It's kind of like when you do a fire drill in the office, except in tabletop exercises, the situation is even more dire, and everyone has more of a clue, unlike in your typical fire drill when at least half the officers wandering around saying, where's the assembly point again? Two fast-paced and challenging scenarios were played out, with those taking part asked to consider the intelligence and events described to them and figure out what processes they would follow and, crucially, how agencies would collaborate. One of the scenarios that was thrown at them? An attack on a mosque in Christchurch. Masjid An-Nur. The very place where the Christchurch shooter would begin his bloody rampage on a Friday afternoon, months later. In the tabletop exercise, the scenario was a vehicle hitting pedestrians leaving the mosque, something which had actually happened in Britain a year earlier, when a racist man drove a van into a crowd near London's Finsbury Park Mosque, killing one worshipper and injuring others. Because that's the thing. Even though Western security agencies and much of the Western media, yes, including in New Zealand, were primarily focused on Islamic extremism and ISIS and the like, Attacks by racists and white supremacists were also happening. If you want examples, think Anders Breivik, who considered himself a knight dedicated to halting Muslim immigration to Europe, killing 77 people in Norway in 2011. Think of the six people killed in a mass shooting at a mosque in Quebec, Canada, 2017. Think of any number of vicious hate crimes in the United States. In the five years from 2014, the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which keeps track of hate crimes as part of its human rights work, 
recorded more than 1,000 racially motivated violent incidents against Muslim people. It was a growing trend, the organisation noted, because although stereotypes against Muslims were centuries old, a number of factors had inflamed hatred, including the post-9-11 war on terror. The organisation says, anti-Muslim rhetoric often associates Muslims with terrorism and extremism, or portrays the presence of Muslim communities as a threat to national identity. But here's the thing. Around that time in New Zealand, the eyes of the intelligence agencies were almost exclusively on the Muslim community as the potential sources of threats, not as a community that needed protecting. As we discussed in Chapter 1, surely it was not an either-or situation. Shouldn't threats from the extreme right have been under scrutiny? After that March 2017 meeting with the 10 government departments, things kind of drifted. It's like the government said, thanks for coming everyone, you can leave it to us now, and then, well, what? There were notes taken, but none were shared with the Muslim groups that presented to the workshop. There was a social cohesion governance group and an associated working group established, led by Internal Affairs and the State Services Commission. Within some individual departments, programs began. Corrections, for instance, worked on ways to employ more people from the Muslim community and to get alongside at-risk young people. But the groups themselves, they floundered. One source says there just seemed to be a lack of action. It got to the stage where a few of us said, we're not even going to go to these things because they're a complete and utter waste of time, says the source. There was plenty to go on, But as a group, we just couldn't do it. It never really went anywhere. By October 2017, both the governance and working groups were finished. Over. Done. With hardly anything to show for all that talking. Danzaisen and Rahman, they were far from done. Despite the knockbacks, despite the silences, despite the disappointments, they were relentless. They wrote long emails. They kept banging on doors. They kept making their points. Even when those points needed making over and over again. At one point, a very senior official referred in an email to their well-rehearsed issues. It was like a red rag to a bull. Dan Zeissen replied, While our issues may appear to be well-rehearsed, it is only so because the Kiwi Muslim community has been seeking support to address these urgent needs for several years now, and we've been forced to repeat them over and over. The issues are real and need urgent support. She signed off her email, Wassalam, peace. But you could sense the frustration. It was like they had to keep banging their heads against the same walls. For instance, over the years... The women asked for money to pay for social workers to help with the issues in the community. Repeatedly, they would be directed towards lottery funding. Apply for that. That's what it's there for, they'd be told. Only, as they told officials, they couldn't. As part of their faith, members of the Muslim community couldn't accept gambling money. The government's decision years ago to rely on lotteries funding to support at-risk communities placed the Muslim community at a deficit, Dan Zeissen wrote in one email. The government knew, or should have known, that this would not allow us to access services that are normally provided for communities. 
thus making us a second-class community. It was situations like this that prompted Dan Zeissen to write to Hughes in late 2017. She hoped it would be a circuit breaker. The way she put things to Hughes, it seems like most of the government agencies are talking about us, but they do not seem to be listening to us. But Dan Zeissen and Rahman weren't just complaining. Rahman says in all their dealings with the agencies, they were very clear, laying out the issues, the solutions, how the Islamic Women's Council could help, and what was needed. As she told us in Chapter 2, we took it as a partnership thing. We were very explicit. In response to the email from Dan Zeissen, Hughes agreed to meet her, and in late January 2018, Dan Zeissen and Rahman travelled down to Wellington from their homes in the Waikato. Hughes declined to be interviewed for this investigation, but he responded to written questions. He wrote, They expressed frustration at being unable to engage the Department of Internal Affairs and other agencies in the matters they raised in our meeting. I don't have the power to direct chief executives in their statutory responsibilities or the work of their agencies, but as the employer of the chief executives, I facilitated responses from the relevant agencies, which is my role. Out of the meeting, a Muslim community leaders group was established to enable government agencies to engage with the community and obtain feedback. And Hughes arranged for one of his deputies to facilitate funding from the Ministry of Social Development for an Islamic Women's Council proposal, the one about employing social workers. Promising stuff. So, did those things eventuate? For the funding, the council was told it needed to establish a business case for the role. A business case writer from the Ministry of Social Development was sent to help them, but it went back and forth. At the time of the Christchurch attacks, it still hadn't been completed. As for the leaders group, it was established after Dan Zeissen came back with a list of about 13 names, respected leaders from across the community. It met once in May 2018, with attendance also from the Department of Internal Affairs, Ministry of Social Development, and the Human Rights Commission. There was a second meeting of the group in November, at that time, there were no government representatives there. Felt like the end of the road. If this advisory group of senior leaders could not get buy-in, serious buy-in, from the government, what was the point? I remember feeling by the end of 2018, we're over this, says Rahman. How much can we keep giving? When you look back at all the dealings these women had with very, very senior officials, question why things kept going around in circles. Were they unrealistic? Or perhaps the officials just saw them as annoying or confrontational? Maybe. One source says amongst some officials dealing with them, there was frustration. They're pissing me off, one official told another of the women. But you know what? If indeed they were annoying, if indeed they were pissing people off, to Rahman and Dan Sison at least, they had very good reason. This was life and death as far as they were concerned. Rahma reminded one very senior official of this in an email in 2018. In it, Rahman was pushing for agencies to be held accountable. She reminded the official that the Muslim community faced real risks to our well-being. She wrote, It is visibly Muslim women that will face the possibility of acid attacks, being beaten and possibly killed. It is our daughters who will face verbal and physical violence in schools and in public. We live with this fear constantly. 
It is in our minds and hearts at all times. The scenarios Rahman was painting in the email were reprisal attacks against the community. Within months, her expression of fear and danger and death was proved absolutely, horrifically prescient. Only, it wasn't a reprisal attack against the community. It was direct, and it was very, very deadly. That was part one of See No Evil on the long read from Stuff, written and read by Eugene Bingham and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.